And now Isaac. Isaac, how are you doing? Doing very good today. How are you, Andrew? Sean? Oh, I'm well. Sean has escaped. He's run away. But uh, your camera's good. That's good. Of course, because you've got a big channel and everything. Tell us a little bit about um, you and what, you, what you're all about. Uh, well, Science and Futurism is a show that got started about eight years ago. We just celebrated our eighth anniversary, and it was a hobby like so many of these things start off as, and kind of grew in time to just kind of look at various topics of everything from space and science fiction concepts and how real they might be to more at home stuff like uh, you know how we could do climate uh, repair or cybernetics or artificial intelligence. And so we basically cover every area of science and futurism we can get our hands on. That sounds like a fun episode. I had a look at your channel before and I was loving it because I love all those big questions. And I suppose I, uh, my first concern was, oh, God, it's all going to be like mad stuff that isn't. But a lot of it is just, you know, the philosophy behind what it would be like if this were true and that kind of stuff. And It all seems uh, really, really interesting. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about, is it, is it alien refugees? Is that right? Alien refugees, yep. What's an alien refugee? That's a good question. Uh, we, it's one of our examples that we do sci-fi Sunday episodes. Once a month, we kind of back down on hard science and try to take something out of sci-fi and just say, is this, if this happened, forget about how possible it is, if it happened, what would that look like? Or how could we make that happen? And one of the most popular themes we had in science fiction is, is this idea that aliens might just show up out of nowhere and land on Earth, crash on a ship, and then we say, well, what do we do with them? We say it's like Alien Nation or District 9. And it turns out to be a much more complex question than one would think because outside of science fiction, they're not going to look much like us. They probably don't breathe the same air as us. They're going to have certain valuable things like even even their discarded garbage is going to have technological leaves that might be valuable for us. And all the other problem being is that anything, anything on their ship that's biologically compatible with us might kill us instantly if it got into the environment. So there's you know these things that might be the hyperinvasive species if it got books in just something really tiny like one little bacteria that might divide and suddenly the ecosystem flops over a year later or so so that's kind of how we approach this topic is let's look at all the kind of things we see normally in sci-fi and then let's see what we can do with them to see how realistic they are see what the unthought of bits of it all that it is a mad thought isn't it and i suppose that's true we all we all see these movies and it's like okay you put your finger out to et's finger and it's all very exciting but uh, the reality is just like when uh the settlers from europe went to or colonists from europe went to uh the americas you, you know they could be bringing all sorts of bugs that might wipe us out right whether it's a small little virus or you know some little pathogen or the i think what's the example from australia rabbits the rabbits yeah. loose in Australia. And there's, you know, these things happen naturally to some degree, but usually when the animal or whatever it is comes across the natural form of their predators and other bits are with them, it's a slow progress. When you mass import them, it becomes a much bigger issue. And mm. you get so many side questions like, well, if they did land, you know, we, I think in, in Alien Nation, they land in the Mojave Desert and then District 9 to land in South Africa and say, well, they landed there. What does everybody else do? What if they landed in North Korea? What would we do about that? Would a country, <laughs> let's imagine they decide to park down somewhere in Siberia right now. What's, what's that actually look like in terms of folks at the UN or otherwise saying, we'd like to talk to these people? No, no, we'll yeah. keep them for ourselves. And, you know, who yeah. gets that type of country? And then North Korea like, would steal all the, or Russia would steal all the information. How defenseless are they? Is it genuine and sincere? Uh, are they being chased by someone? And if so, 
do we want to get involved with that? Because it probably isn't going to look good for us, you know? Yeah, because you philosophize about whether, you know, they might be running from people, right? Who might they be running from? Well, if we're assuming they're going slower than light, there's a chance that they might be, you know, fleeing from themselves. It might be a civil war or something like that, in which case it might be the equivalent of like the, you know, uh, you know the War of Roses is coming to an end and uh, the losing factions decide to come visit us. And it'd be a bit like that too, because the nearest place might be 300 years of travel away. So you don't really know what that looks like diplomatically anymore. They might've been a horrible, horrible people who were fleeing one step ahead of the guillotine too. You know, they might've been, you know, the worst exiles you can imagine. But after yeah. 300 years on a ship, maybe you're talking to their descendants who have this rose colored image of them and all themselves actually very nice. Or they might've torn very nasty and piratic in the meantime, even though they were the noble fleeing rebels, you know? And this, those, those, those little bits that we do on the show that tend to, I, I think they add a little bit of flavor to other stories, but they also make us think realistically about how these scenarios might play out. So if aliens do show up tomorrow, uh, however likely that might be, we at least have some idea of what we probably want to ask. You know? Yeah, I can see why your channel is so popular. This is kind of, uh, I suppose it's, uh, what is it? I, I, I'm not sure which word I'm supposed to use, but like a smoking uh, after having smoking sessions, or, or it's quite a nerdy conversation, which I love having. I can have these for hours. Um, and also, tell me, where's your accent from? Because I'm hearing a Texas thing. It's it's a bit of a mix of a speech impediment with a little bit too much travel. I spent probably too much time as a kid getting exposed to New England and BBC voices, and then I had some time in the military, and everyone in the U.S. Army develops a South Georgia accent, so it kind of like follows together, but I had uh, I couldn't pronounce ours for the longest time, and or any of the other glides like rolled, which always has a bit of a non-rotic dialect like you see from New England, for instance. And then I got some therapy for that. And I expected to go away completely and just have a normal voice, as you'd expect from somebody who lives in Northeast Ohio. And he said, "Well, you got a bit of that accent, but you got something else in there too. It's an actual accent, not just an impediment." I said, "Okay, what is it?" I said, "Well, we've been talking about that with a few other experts, and they say it's Mid-Atlantic." Said Mid-Atlantic, yes. isn't yeah. Isn't that the kind of that fake one that people put on? So you're kind of good. All right, <laughs> works for me. Oh, it's one of my favorite accents, though. That's I was picking up on that, and then I was getting a little bit of um. And I hope you don't mind me analyzing your accent. I just love oh, accents. And I was getting a little bit of uh, I do declare. I was getting a bit of that sort of thing, but then also the mid Atlantic. I was getting, which is which is I great. I think it's there's so many dialects that do the softer alls that it's easier to speak and if you don't do alls very well they oh. tend to stick with me a little bit more so that bit of that southern one but the new england one bit of the british one bit of every other place and usually it sounds like you know it's somebody who speaks english as their native language but you can't quite figure out where you're from so <laughs> it's a wonderful accent i, I love it <laughs> i think you speak well, very beautifully when i first started doing the show i because again mm. i had not expected to become a show uh, it was just a hobby of fun topics to talk with with you know he was explaining these science concepts to sci-fi authors in a lot of cases. And uh, I thought, well, if this catches off, I'll, I'll just hire a narrator. And my audience at the time, because it started growing, says, don't you dare. You know, this is the voice <laughs> we're used to. It's like, okay, well, then I, I guess I'll go get speech therapy instead. <laughs> well, people obviously like your voice. Anyway, I better get back onto the aliens, right? How do we determine if these aliens are being honest? What kind of ways can we do that? I think a lot of times by asking what their request would tend to be. And in other episodes, we talk more about space colonization and the realism of it. We, we start finding out things like you're probably much more likely than terraforming planets like Mars or Venus. You might do these, but more often you would build a space habitat that was 
kind of more to your actual taste. Like the day on Mars is a half hour too long and the gravity is about 60% too weak. Venus, the, the day is about 300 to 200 days too long and uh, the temperature is, you know, you know it, very warm. <laughs> they used mm-hmm. to think it was paradise planets and then they found out the, the beautiful clouds of what were made of acid. So ah, you can chill from a place like that or you can make a gigantic habitat that's really, you know, kind of an all a constructed ecology where you just rotate it to produce the gravity that rate you want, the day length of the trade you want, or any number of other options that might come up technologically if, for instance, uh, you just get something like artificial gravity. And so we think, why would the aliens be fleeing here? All ecosystems not going to be anything like theirs. And you don't necessarily want to open your arms up, but you might get an instant like Man of Steel where the aliens arrive like, well, we've, we're here, we'd like to terraform your planet to all who needs. And so I said, well, how can we replicate what they need for their environment? But if they're coming to visit, the most likely scenario is they are coming here. Why? For sanctuary. They want us to protect them. I don't think we have big enough guns to repel a giant space fleet right now. <laughs> Maybe they're hoping that if they give us the technology for it, we might build that. And then the question is, do we actually want to help these people? How do we know? How open are they being with us about these things? If they've been able to study our radio waves for a century while they came in, there's a good chance they can play us like a book, whereas we know mm. what if they feed us. We might not even know what they look like. They look like cute little foy aliens, as depicted in the best Pixar movie that they were able to find. And then they uh, they actually show up and they got like 50 tentacles and scale Cthulhu. You know? Oh, my God. <laughs> Although those <laughs> might actually more. be the friendly aliens, too. <laughs> I was hearing recently that it's unlikely they've even heard our radio waves if there are aliens out there, just because they would be so far beyond uh, radio, most likely. Yeah. Well, the thing is, they might have some technology that's better than radio, and and without even going to new physics, they might just use type beam communication. You know, laser beams do spread out as they go through space. It's just that they spread out a lot thinner, so you can use a much strong, you know, much longer distance. So you just aim for the place you want to speak to, and it's going to show up like a flashlight that kind of range saves power. But even then, they're still probably using electromagnetic signals. If they're not, they still know that we are. If they have some means of doing faster and light travel, then there's no reason why they couldn't be dropping off probes that could hear radio waves in every solar system they could think of. It sounds a bit weird, but even with almost a trillion stars in this galaxy, any kind of interstellar civilization shouldn't have any problems putting a probe right around every single planet to you know just take a direct look like a satellite recon would. At the same time, they should be able to spot planets before we ever send any radio waves out. You know, we're not looking right now for alien radio signals as much as we used to. We're focused more on, you know, that little central says there's oxygen. So there shouldn't be that much free oxygen in the environment. And this is a good example of how we constantly have to redefine what we think all leads or common sense in uh, anything involving aliens, but certainly in terms of the future in general, which is always that thing that seems really obvious to us now as a certainty. When we get a little bit of new technology, somebody says, well, that's absolutely not how things are going to happen after all you know we uh, we think of the robot vacuum cleaner on the jetsons it's a robot pushing a vacuum cleaner and we <laughs> say well it needs to be small enough to have a conversation with us so it's got to be pretty smart uh and of course then we find out that you don't really need to make a a, a machine smart enough to understand human directions you need to make a human smart enough to understand the machine's programming so you can just make it do its job you don't need to really tell the blender to operate you need to know how to push the button and yeah. it's got its job, and the same for the Roomba or the mop, etc. So, which is another area we look at a lot of times. If it's alien, there's a good chance it's not actually biological. It might be alien artificial intelligence, and huh. uh, we don't know how they might show up. But you have to look through the various options that could have go on for them. Like if they were alien 
robot. They don't really care about the environment at all. That shouldn't matter to them that much. They're just some place they can set up power collectors at. On uh, the flip side of that is that if they are um, if they are robots, right, then uh, do they really want to talk to us, or would they like to talk to Google instead? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And now robots curious. I, I suppose what you what you were just saying made me think about the Fermi paradox. Uh, mm -hmm. You were talking about, you know, it shouldn't be so difficult for an alien civilization, particularly if they've had millions of years to develop, uh, mm -hmm. to be able to search for radio waves everywhere. Um, and and for those who don't know what what that is, well, maybe you could explain the Fermi paradox and 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 where where you stand on that. Well, the the Fermi paradox, and it's probably one of the most popular topics on the show, is is the very basic idea that the universe is huge and ancient, 13, 14 billion years old, and so huge that it makes our galaxy look like a little dot and our planet look like an atom-sized speck. And it's enormous, and it's ancient, and it's full of planets, and it doesn't seem to have any obvious aliens all over the place. At least we don't seem to see that right now. Um, you know, it's, it's debatable at the very least, and we don't know where they are. And we tend to think they should be everywhere. If they've been around for billions of years, they should have colonized every rock. The alien equivalent of Starbucks should be everywhere, you know? And yet we don't see them. So we say, well, what could be some reasons for that? And you got the kind of the rare earth camp that says, well, the conditions needed for life are probably rare, and the conditions needed for intelligence are probably rare. And you have the camp that says maybe intelligence is common, but they blow themselves up a lot, and you can't travel between the stars. And you have a number of other camps that say we'll, they, they are here all the time and we're just really blind and stupid about it. Or that we don't recognize them because they're ascension cloud and they're not really looking to talk to us because they're ascension cloud. <laughs> What's and ascension cloud? Yeah. yeah, ascension cloud could just be something floating through space that's one very slow giant mind and we look like a mayfly to it because we only live a, a century as it takes that line to blink its eye. Those are the yeah. kind of weirder options you get with that. Um, you know, we only know one way that life can really evolve right now, but there could be a lot of others. And the, that's the problem with the Fourier paradox is just sheer immensity. The universe says there, there should be something, but at the same time, we say if there is, why aren't they around? And, and to Fermi himself, it was no paradox. He helped make the atom bomb, and there was no space race when he died. It hadn't happened yet. So he just assumed that space traveled on the wars was virtually impossible and that civilizations tended to blow themselves up first. Post-moon landing, the guy who coined the term Fermi Paradox, who was Michael Halt, he said that uh, since we had successfully traveled to at least the nearest world, the moon, and we hadn't blown ourselves up in the meantime, there was a decent chance some people would survive. And since there's a biological urge to colonize space, if it's possible, they probably will. And that's where we start getting into so many problems of... of uh, it's not the idea that our alien homeworld might be, you know, 100,000 light years away. It's that their colony might be 10 light years away. You know, that's how far away they are because they just fill up space. It's not where the original amoeba on Earth expanded from. It's the fact that it only probably needed a few thousand years to expand over the entire planet. So you really don't expect life to emerge one place in the galaxy before it had a chance to pretty much be all over the place. That's the... Uh, Kind of nonsense concept behind the um, grabby aliens uh, notion, which is actually our episode for tomorrow on the show. Oh, cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I think the biggest thing with a lot of the alien examples that we come up with in, in, in these is how we would interact with them. We so often assume that they'd have fashion light travel and communication. And the, the problem there is we're not sure if we could hear their radio signals from 100 light years away. There are ways that can make really loud ones, you can galaxies away just using known science, but it takes a lot of power. But the game changes if they suddenly have faster light travel, but only makes the Fermi paradox way worse because 
if it's that easy to travel through space and to send signals through space, you should be able to coordinate huge empires and build them very quickly. And they also don't seem to be there. And so where do, what does that leave us with? We're alone? I tend to think that. That tends to be where I land at myself. Um, but the the after years of doing this, I say the strongest, or I should say least weak camp, is the idea that, that intelligent life is probably just very rare. Nobody else in our galaxy yet, and maybe no one in our supercluster. Though our supercluster is also small. It contains around a million galaxies, and there's about 10 million of those in the universe too. So even something that big is tiny in the universe. But, so there might be a million alien civilizations out there, each with a million galaxies apiece. Yeah, so that would still be pretty populated. But that to me has always been the strongest one, or at least weak. None of them really work ideally. I've never heard a solution post for the Fermi Paradox that didn't have holes in it. Hmm. I suppose so. it is just like you say, it's so, so rare. I should just say that there are people in the chat, there's a there's a running joke that Sean started that I'm a cyborg or some such thing because uh, there's a there's a hole at the back of my hair, like alopecia, and uh, that's where they plug me in. And so I think some people are making the joke and just others who are set, I think others are actually genuinely concerned. I, I promise I'm not making your phone hot uh, or <laughs> any, any, any of your devices warmer than, than they may usually be. That's unrelated to me, although I can't speak for Isaac who might be doing that. It was long assumed I was an artificial intelligence on the show, which admittedly I, I did tend to play up a bit. So, <laughs> Isn't it amazing the stuff that some people, I mean, obviously some people are joking around. I do have a question from Ray J for, uh, for Isaac. Do you think all the alien stuff is in the Bible, just distorted to suit their need for control? Uh, well, I, I suppose we're trying to who they was in that case. Um, mm. I'm, you know, I'm not the best scholar uh, of either the New or Old Testament, but to the best of my knowledge, there's really not too much discussion there that would discuss other planets. You, I've, I've certainly seen people who have discussed that in say context of things like Nephilim or other things, but you'd have to talk to a priest or a rabbi or a minister that's mm. more focused on that to really get anything in terms of scriptural quotations. But I would say, and I, I know the Quran has some mention of this too. And certainly a lot of the uh, Eastern religions that kind of least the concept comes up of life from other worlds. And you could say that even about things like Norse mythology, it's it's in there. I don't know that, that indicates that anyone from those places came and visited us and told us about them, or just that we are clever people who are prone to wander both in body and mind so that we you know don't have any problem picturing new places to be. Um, so I couldn't give you a definitive answer on that one way or another, of course. Me Let's either. go back to this um, initial uh, idea, I suppose, of, of aliens coming here. Uh, how might we benefit from them arriving on our planet? I mean, the, usually the, the big one, of course, is that you know, if, if somebody from right now crashed back in the 1800s on a magic spaceship, um, you know, their cell phone is full of technology. And while we might say, well, no one in the 1800s could possibly figure that out, and there'd be some amount of truth to that, there's a lot they could figure out from that. And there's a lot that they could, you know, people often don't realize how simple scientific advances are and how easy they are to get once they get them. A lot of us who go through like physics, for instance, we're getting related training uh, to some of the higher concepts, but we don't know about some specific invention or something. And I don't know anyone in my field who hasn't, you know, some story about how they thought up this one really cool idea out of the blue that would be worth millions, and they found out somebody had already invented it. It's like, oh. <laughs> but it yeah. wasn't plagiarized. You know, so maybe you came across it by accident, but more likely you've had that more advanced training, and so the idea came to you very naturally. 
a lot of sophisticated technology is incredibly simple once something's put you on the center of that trail. And mm -hmm. so an alien device, even just seeing how the thing flies without knowing any of the specifics, could potentially work out that way. That's why, with an example of alien concourse, if they show up, they're going to beat us just horribly. It, it would not even be a contest. Just because yeah. it can fly across space, there's that much energy valve. But if they're occupying us, much like us occupying some colony that was um, you know, low-tech, even Neolithic, you only need a generation or two before they start figuring stuff out in detail because they're exposed to it constantly. And then the parity changes because technology is not a good measure of a society's ethics, nor is it really something that sticks to you very long. It's just there, you know, and uh, we tend to mystify technology because our culture is so built around it. But there is very little that we use on a day-to-day -day basis where you couldn't talk and explain to someone who's got decent scientific principles a basic of how that thing operates in short order. Hmm. Although there's a lot of things that I don't know if I could understand if someone spent an entire day telling me. So a little bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering, so then if they came down here and we got some of their technology, but as you say, it doesn't give us much idea about their ethics. I suppose we'd like to think that compared to maybe the Columbus days and the colonizing days, that if they're that advanced technologically, that they might have some kind of ethics involved and some sort of, you know, I, I suppose, I know you say there's no link to the, but maybe there is a link. If they're that advanced, maybe they, they don't want to hurt us. They'd see us as like people, you know, not to hurt. We have this idea sometimes that there, there is a, a core fundamental morality. And I personally like that idea. I like the idea that there is a genuine right or wrong. I can't prove that. You know, I can't prove I have free will either, but I work from that assumption in the meantime. And if there is such a thing as a core fundamental right and wrong, um, then it should be something anybody could figure out. And if that's the case, then a lot of things about what is, you know, what should I do in this situation? You know, what is the right answer to the trolley problem or whether I each other to run people over or switch on a track and run one person over? Those kind of, those existential issues. If those have real correct answers, they know them too. And that would be the morality every in the universe presumably used once they got to a certain point. On the other hand, that's, that's, that's a lot of assumptions in there and a lot of <laughs> generosity. And um, the flip side of that is you have to say, what do we know about them from them getting here? And I, I would not say that it's wrong to go flee to other people when you need help. But if you're traveling hundreds of light years around many empty star systems, because the vast majority of space is empty, as best as we can tell, and when your civilization doesn't want to live on Earth anyway, but maybe some space habitat that could build an asteroid, why come here? And what does that tell us about them? And say, well, maybe they're coming from some space empire that has a rule about not messing around with primitive civilizations, so they can claim sanctuary here the same as one of us might claim it in Monaco or some other country that our home nation could step on like a bug, but won't do it. You know, Maybe that's the reason why they came here. We can protect them if we give them permission to stay. Other than that, though, the only thing I could think of is they're hoping that either A, We'll distract the enemy while they run some more. You know, it's like, here's this new civilization that would like to go to war with you. We'll sneak out the back door while you're pounding them in the dust. Or they're hoping to convince us to come in and join their side, which might not be unethical. I mean, it could be that they are running from something horrible like the Borg from Star Trek, and they're just giving us some advanced notice of conflict we got to get involved in anyway. Or it might be something where they're planning to feed us since the, you know, the meat grinder on their behalf. You know? Oh, my word. What if they're so, just curious i'm being optimistic they're just curious and they think they can learn in the way that we can learn from looking at different sort of um, primitive anim animals that we don't know about yet we want to learn and study them 
and that's a, a fair point too is in some ways if they are guests here if they're traveling across you know stellar space for potentially centuries to get here in some ways they kind of are a refugee you know if they came here intentionally and with the, with only a temporary stay in mind it's like a scholar because they are far from home they have no family or friends other than those who are with them and they're basically going to have to try to make a home here you know if they're just studying and it does raise that question of how do you do anthropology in space? Because we've got Star Trek, we say, oh, they probably don't like to interfere. I say, I don't know any anthropologists who do that. They just don't like to grossly interfere. They don't hide. They show up and like, tell me about your ways. They're like, I'm not here. Ignore me. Um, so they've come here and they like to study us. And we say, that's good. We'd like to know who you, you We'd like something in return, like to study you. We want to know about what you've got going on. And I think when Alien shows up and says, well, I can't tell you about my home civilization or share with you any of our technologies, I'd be inclined to say, well, you know, there's the door. You, you leave by the same door you came in. <laughs> yeah. Because why would they do that? They've got the ability to cure cancer, for instance. How are we really harmed as a society by getting that? You know, you yeah. expect them to share something. And we do this. It's not like when all guys go in and they say, well, we'd like these things. We don't just think, well, I'm going to randomly start dropping off cell phones here. But we do answer their questions usually back. You know, they're, they're welcome to join society as opposed to, told that they cannot it was just saying it's their choice not ours but if they're tough negotiators whoever's doing that negotiating suppose it's biden or some world <laughs> leader i don't know and it, then they say is, well you'll find if you might do that <laughs> <laughs> if, if they say well you're not going to share stuff with us then there's the door you'll forever be remembered as the president who just uh lost the oh, aliens yeah. forever absolutely and, and all the other world leaders are going to be like hey come on over here too so there's another one of those realism aspects. I can say, you should, you know, if, you, if they come by and offer stuff and they're not willing to actually share anything back with Tony, you should tell them to go away. But some countries <laughs> going to say yes, aren't they? I mean, surely yeah. someone will. Yeah, they can yeah. just do it to like, you know, thumb their nose at us. They're going to do it. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. We've got you the want aliens. To be the we... on that deal. It's exclusive. You know? <laughs> yeah. They may not be teaching us anything, but we've got them. Damn it. God. <laughs> so. Go on. Sorry, what were you going to say? In a case like that, what do we do if, like, let's say they're landing and say, well, all we want is to land. Uh, we can't promise you that all the, the stuff in all labs and all, uh, you know, farms on board our ship aren't going to run crazy on your environment. We just like to claim a little bit of ocean space and land around you. And you say, well, um, don't land yet. We need to look through this and do some tests. They say, well, no, we're landing. Who will let us land? And let's say some countries, oh, you can come here. And well, what do we tell them? It's like, if you let that ship land, we're going to nuke you. You know, <laughs> the oh options are kind of limited in a case like that. I mean, that because it could go there pretty quick. If there is something on board that ship which would just be lethal to us, unintentionally or not, you know, you're letting somebody arrive here who who unintentionally could have something that makes the black plague look like a cold, and yeah. you haven't had a chance to test this out yet. And so, I mean, what what is the urgency too? If they traveled all this way, you know, outside of an FTL universe, they spent centuries traveling. Why do they need to suddenly land in the next like hour or two or days? They can go into orbit, and we can say, "You're welcome, except solo collectors. Do not land on this planet." You know, and then so we should have had people. Ago. Do you think there are people in government, in defense, and stuff who are thinking things like what you're saying right now, just just in case, on the very unlikely chance that it happens? Probably a fair enough. I could actually name a couple that I know I've talked about topics with this before, like Peter Garrett's, and I cannot remember what his specific role with Space Force was when they were going on it, but uh, he had introduced me to them. So I had had the pleasure of speaking at the U.S. Air Force Academy as a guest lecturer during COVID, and um, also to work with some of the folks who were setting up Space Force back when that was going on. And 
they do ask questions a little less like that. I mean, they ask those as side notes, but that's not the main topics. They're more mm -hmm. on like, what would you do if someone tries to steal your satellite or takes a cargo ship or passenger ship hostage on the way to the moon? Um, but they do think about things like that. That's only off, mm -hmm. off, you know, in recess breaks, etc. Yeah, they go there too. They've grown up on the same sci-fi movies the rest of us have. <laughs> yeah, well, speaking of sci-fi movies, when when you said about the, the the countries all sort of being maybe against one another and negotiating and stuff, it reminded me of Arrival. That's one of my favorite movies, and they all start to uh, have problems because like China disagrees with some of the other countries and all that. And I suppose that's a real possibility if aliens were yeah. to come here. And it could draw us together, or it could push apart. And and some folks would say, well, surely it's the face of something is you know if so alien, we would draw together. But the mistake people tend to make sometimes is to forget that it's not that which is very different from us that drives us nuts. We usually get along very well with people who live far away from us that have nothing in common. It's our siblings and next-door neighbors who we most want to punch. And mm -hmm. so if aliens show up, you could easily have them you know, pick sides in, in a conflict and, and everyone just uh, you know, is cheerfully, hey, look, the aliens are on our side. So that proves <laughs> to you we're on the right because they're not even from our planet. They're not biased. Yeah, saying, yeah. The aliens are, sides with these aliens. <laughs> the aliens believe in gender ideology or something. So now that's a thing. Well, they might show up with three different types of actual genders, and and yet be we are saying <laughs> they'd be very understanding of our modern perspective on these things. And it turns out that they are not. Or, or vice versa. You don't. We don't know what the things would translate well over for them. And generally, tends to take the view that even if aliens are relatively near bias. You probably wouldn't have a lot of like Star Trek cases where you have Spock born of, of both a, a human and a Vulcan or the, the pretty looking aliens from this or that film that uh, look very human, but not quite, you know, they're probably not going to be least bit attractive to each other. They're not likely to really want to spend time with each other. And odds are the only people really want to interact with them are either scientists or anthropologists and everybody else is just that empire we try to think about because they're so nice. They gave us so many things. They helped us with so many of our technological problems. And they keep telling us that the biggest way we should fix their birth control problem that we have is to do what they do, which is to kill one tenth of their children when they turn two. <laughs> because that's just what they've always done and it works fine. <laughs> Man, that's a and good just, point. Something probably real like that could happen, you know. Something I, I never thought about because I'm so excited by the idea, and I think most people are the idea that aliens might arrive. It's almost a religious uh, need, a need to fill a void or to find something exciting beyond the things we've already known about. Um, and I never thought about how, like, okay, the first few days, most exciting thing ever. And as we find out more stuff, really exciting. But then I might be like in a room with just like a random alien guy who's just like the normal, you know, he's not the president. He's, either, he's not and, a great poet or scientist. He's the guy yeah. who fixes the garbage machine. Yeah. <laughs> what am I going to say to that? I'd be like, oh, fuck. Trying to like speak their language. I'd be really bored. And that, that would be boring, unfortunately. Be horribly boring, and he's not going to get basketball because there's only five hoops involved in the game, and he likes to have games that have at least 20 different hoops, and we don't have enough eyeballs, really, to play it right anyway. So, yeah. yeah. It would start it's, to get it's really... those little differences. They're not going to be overlapping as much. Yeah, people could really... I suppose the good thing about... I mean, it was quite fortunate with like race. There was a whole while, a few hundred, in the, a few hundred years ago, or, or only a hundred years ago, really, where people thought different races had, you know, vastly different genetics that made them either superior or inferior. And it, it was quite a, a lucky thing, I suppose, that it turned out not to be true. Because if it was, we'd have yeah. a whole hierarchy and stuff. Yeah. Well, with aliens, the system too. But with them, it could be true. Yeah. And what's more, what you say? Well, with aliens, it could very easily be true. But, yeah. Uh, we could have that with our own colonists too. I mean, you settle a planet that's a hundred light years away, 
it takes a hundred years to send them a copy of your newest movies and books. So there's constantly be a flow back and forth data wise, but alien, you know, you have humans landing on another planet, even without bringing genetic engineering or cybernetics into it. How long do you live on a planet that has different gravity and different sunlight from this planet before you start being noticeably different in culture and for mm. long in body? And, you know, by the time you colonize a galaxy, there might not have been any aliens when you started off, but they're all now because these guys live a million, you know, years of travel away and they've been separated from you for 10 million years of genetic engineering and, and actual normal diversity. They don't look like you anymore. You know, the folks back on Earth don't look terribly human anymore and nobody looks like them or their neighbors. <laughs> what a weird thing that would be. It's a great thing to think about. I suppose a lot of people imagine that, I mean, there's a lot of talk about UAP, which, or, which is the new word for UFOs. Uh, a lot of people imagine that UFOs or aliens in the UFOs might actually already be here, perhaps in sort of invisible, you know, just just watching and not, you know, like a like a. I suppose we talked about anthropologists, but the type that you know, animal anthropologists who who film stuff and try not to get involved. Maybe that's what they're doing. Yeah, I never liked the idea of that job because you see some cute little lion cubs. Like I know, I know they're going to get dusted. Why? How can you just leave them there like that? But you know, well, of course, the world beasts are kind of grateful that you did. But I think. It's a difficult one in that kind of context to say, what should you do if you're an alien who comes across some planet like that? And part of you says, well, I should leave it alone. You say, well, I'm a civilized person. I survived. You know, I'm from the modern times. I know you don't just bump into someone's civilization and screw around. You say, well, what are you going to do? So therefore, a million years putting a quarantine on that planet? Because you might run into people where they are a thousand years behind us now. That's great, but that would be really lucky. More likely, mm -hmm. you run into somebody who's like, hey, we just discovered fire in a million years. We might get pottery. Or they haven't got opposable thumbs and they're very intelligent, but they're never going to get fire. What's well, planet for dolphins and whales and they're never going to get fire? They'll be, you know, billions of years before we were around. They've already got brains uh, smaller than us, but they're just stuck there and they don't really think about colonizing space. You know, those are those tricky questions that there aren't good answers to, but you have to look at them from the standpoint of practical. And, and we say, well, we should not do anything on that planet other than absorb it and say, that's great. You've been observing it for 100,000 years now, and you're the Federation. We'll use Star Trek as such a great example. Presumably, you don't actually hide that these places exist. I mean, it seems like a free society. You wouldn't be redacting something as big as the existence of an entire culture. So that's out there. What were you doing to stop people who want to come by and do something else? You know, blow up their ship? Uh, what mm. about the, the anthropologists who went a little bit off the reservation towards what you're supposed to do? Are you going to shoot them? What if they decide they are going to cure this disease these people have and say, well, we want to avoid the tampering there. So I don't see that we have any choice but to do some orbital bombardment on the continent in which those natives were at so as to avoid tampering with the civilization on the other side of the planet when it spills over that they've been given pottery, you know? Yeah. And so a lot of times what we think of as the good answers from sci-fi, and this is why we have speculative fiction in any area, is to kind of think these things through and say, at first glance, that made sense. And then at second glance... It, it not so much, you know. How do you quarantine a planet for a million years? How many billions of dollars are you spending per year for a million years to put war fleets around someplace? And how much do you trust them? You know. <laughs> well, I just thought I, you know, I think South Park have done this and Rick and Morty as well. That mm -hmm. it's a reality show called Earth, and they're all watching mm -hmm. it on their different like alien around the galaxy. And then there's the other idea I think from South Park, and I'm, I presume in literature before that. Um, that once you reach a certain level of technology you're welcomed you get like a letter from the alien world and you're welcomed into it earth becomes one of the trusted planets you know 
then it's a question to say is I think and I, I bash on Star Trek a lot. So, uh, but one of the examples they they contact people when they get warp drive. You say, well, what's special about warp drive? How does that make them more civilized? Say, well, it doesn't. It's just that that point in time, they're gonna discover things anyway. Say, why do we get in touch with you and invent the radio? Well, you're gonna start overhearing our conversations soon anyway. So once we hear you on there, we figure, let's go ahead and do this now for, you know, minimal damage. You know, and that's certainly certainly a very good option but you know you i mean i don't know that rick and morty really covers very well how alien contact happens they are you've lost where everyone always been contacted besides or yeah. but um it is often surprising how good shows like futurama or rick and morty or south park are sometimes handling uh sci-fi issues or science for them at all or just cultural but um i think with the, a lot of these cases there is that question of why did they wait you know, what, what was special about us now that lets us be welcomed in that wasn't special about us when Malconi, you know, invented the radio or when, for that matter, we just invented agriculture. You know, when we started looking up at the skies and looking at these things, why didn't they step in then? Um, <clears throat> and it's a kind of a hard question is, on the one hand, it seemed kind of odd to be like, hey, um, everybody who's died since you decided to see us but not do anything is kind of on your head. I said, <laughs> well, that's not really fair. I say. All right. But at the same time, you know, why are we now special and, and why are you welcoming us into the to your community? And I think it's a lot easier sometimes to say if we are in a zoo and this is the zoo hypothesis, the idea that we are on display for them or in a quarantine until they have time to deal with us or until we evolve enough. We shouldn't assume that the universe around us has us as a tiny little piece of it as the zoo. We should probably more accurately assume that the universe as we see it is the zoo not the place where the other aliens and caretakers live. And it sounds insane because there's so much universe, but you know, <laughs> yeah. to the best of our knowledge, the absorber universe is not the edge of the universe. There could be an infinite amount of it out there. Nor do we have any idea if to a sufficiently advanced technology, they might say, oh, we found a planet with basic life on it. Um, what should we do with that? Throw it into a pocket universe and set off a big bang. <laughs> and we can talk to them in a few trillion years when they get involved. You know, that might be their approach to these things. Or, you know, one method of preserving civilizations that's most effective, you really want to protect them, is what you do is you, you find this planet full of basic life, you know, like humans um, in whatever state, and you, you kill them all, and you digitally upload their brains into computers, and you upload them into a virtual universe, another pocket universe, and uh, and then you can do whatever you want with that planet, including turning it into hard drives and solar power for them. And you take them back on a hard drive to your, you know, your main empire where they can be protected beside a billion ship line or martyr. And I say, well, would we even know if they did that? If they landed and just, you know, they infected everybody with little nanobots that could copy their brain. And then at one moment they flip them and you wake up. You say, well, I, I, that was weird. Well, I must, uh, must need to sit down real quick and a drink of water. I feel like the whole world tilted for a second there. Maybe I should see the doctor. Nope, everything looks fine. Universe is as it normally is. Nothing to see here. Did that board just fly by twice? No, all is well. <laughs> you know, we encounter anomalies all the time, so they're probably going to be able to handle it. And the other cool thing about digital situations, like with the Matrix, we see they are all these people living in virtual reality, is when you're not in a tank, when you're actually a hard drive or an uploaded person, or they got good enough brain control anyway, you can't ever find out that you're in the Matrix because... If everyone suddenly figures out there was a problem or there was an incident that made the thing look off for a moment, they just hit the pause button and go back to the last safe state. They can yeah. also put little you know, algorithms in your brain that say, if they suddenly get too suspicious about how real things are, 
they're going to suddenly you know hit a little red flag and we send them a signal saying you know what i like right now a beer <laughs> or you know that wasn't real or maybe i should see a psychologist or you just say no i wasn't suspicious at all because they just changed what you were thinking so the, the problem yeah. with a lot of these two things is if we're in one the only thing I could think of would be if we've been placed in one for the purpose of uh, trying to prepare us to consciously come to the realization we're not necessarily in the real ones that we'd be comfortable when we emerge into the wider galaxy which or universe which might look nothing like space around us. It might be mm. utterly different. You know, it might not even be three-dimensional. <laughs> um, that's a scary thought as well. But I th- the, ma- the Matrix one, I've, I've often heard that people say I, I can't remember what it what is it that people say that's like like something like you know why do they why did they need why didn't they just use batteries instead of humans for they batteries is that what oh, i yeah. say <laughs> uh, i mean the one with the matrix I, I think the original plot they had been using them for processing power something like that but either way is not very good a humans like the i think in the movie it says uh using humans bioenergy in conjunction with a limited form of fusion which it's just kind of saying using this incredibly inefficient negative source that you'd have to dump yeah. energy into, along with the best power source ever, they were able to generate power. And if yeah. anything happens to that incredible crappy system of power they were using, they could never fall back on the infinite source of power they already have. <laughs> you know? so, yeah, it made no sense. I like sense the idea where they said they were keeping us around as kind of the, um, you know, as kind of a creative processing center, but even that doesn't really make a lot of sense. It just at least makes some sense. Like uh, just a computer <laughs> ad for creativity for the Matrix, but yeah. it's it was a good first movie. I enjoyed the visuals in the second movie, and the third movie I, I joined the army the next day. So <laughs> <laughs> not because of that. Fair enough, it was last film I saw before I had to leave for boot camp. Oh, was it? Yeah, they, it wasn't. It wasn't brilliant. The the second two I didn't think were brilliant. But uh, so tell me some other stuff that you've obviously been looking into on your channel that's really really fascinating. And one is thinking about the civilizations at the end of time and, and black hole farming so tell us a bit about that that was one of our original really popular episodes that i never thought anyone was actually going to watch it was there was like six other episodes that kind of led up to the topic and i thought well without having seen these no one's going to enjoy this episode so it'll probably just be buried off in the corner <laughs> and it turns out to be our most popular episode for years uh the idea being that we always think that that one day the sun's going to burn out and we'll go live around another sun and then and that will burn out eventually too and there'll be a period of time when stars stop happening for a while and then that'll be it. And then we'd say, well, everything runs down eventually. I said, well, that's still gonna be true. There's something like a black hole, but according to Stephen Hawking's theory of these things, which we can't prove yet, but the math works well for it. Black holes slowly evaporate. They slowly lose energy and the smaller they are, the faster they lose energy and the really, really small ones, the ones that wouldn't even occur naturally, but you might be able to make or which the bigger ones will eventually turn into can release a lot of energy to pick up wonderful power reactors and it's the most energy efficient source you can get is even better than fusion which is what the stars run on and inefficiently right. most stars don't even use a tenth of their fuel supply this thing would use that entire fuel supply and be 100 times more efficient in the process so you got a black hole that's got 100 times the mass of our sun in it and when it slowly evaporates it's going to give off something like a hundred thousand times the actual energy that our, our sun would have done so even feeding our dead sun's corpse into it would be you know, a hundred times more efficient than that sun would ever have been, or well, a thousand times more efficient. And the idea then was that after all the stars start dying off, and after we're done using that way, and maybe even before, because we might move those stars into black holes, we just make various black holes of various slightly staggered sizes and live off of them. You make power while you dump the energy down them. It's about 20% uh, um, mass energy efficient to dump matter down there 
which is 1% fusion. So 20 times better just doing that. And then you make that long time deposit and you eventually get your interest back in a trillion, trillion years. So this is the idea that civilizations might run in this period after stars and not just some little meager civilization that is, is the remnant, you know, kind of hanging out in the barren tundra of a dying universe, but rather that that would be when almost everything of interest really happened because that would be where 99.999% of the living happened. You know, it's just be much mm-hmm. more energy abundant time in terms of efficiency. And, and here's the other big one, in a post-digital civilization, a post-biological civilization, digital one, things kind of run on computation. How efficient your computation is, is how efficient your brains run for all practical purposes. And we have a thing called Landauer's limit, which says that where classic computation is concerned, the colder it is, the more efficient it is. So if you make something half the temperature, it will process twice as efficiently. You'll get twice as much processing for the same amount of energy. So the universe as it expands, keeps getting cooler and cooler and cooler. As long as your background is colder than your engine, whether it's a black hole or you know a, a star or just a regular chemical one, it gets its paper making energy. So when the place is running at a millionth of a degree Kelvin, it's going to be a billion times more efficient than right now. Well, if you got a thousand times the fuel efficiency on these things anyway, because you're running through a black hole as opposed to just casual fusion, and you got a million times the energy efficiency, they are what a billion times more efficient a billion times more thinking done for each little bit of energy. And so that's a lot of thinking and that's a lot of living. So, and it's spread over a huge period of time anyway. And that's kind of the notion behind these, these universes at the end of time, these civilizations at the end of time is that even though we think of it as the period in which if there's anything left at all, it's just a few, you know, colonies hanging on, like at the end of things, like we see at, uh, I think there's web of Doctor Who, where they're at the end of the universe and there's just a few humans left over, waiting to, uh, to travel uh, wide, uh, some new universe on the last remnant of Earth 100 trillion years from now. And that's how we picture the end of the universe is this, this little collapsing thing at the end. This says the other way around, these are huge empires of dwarf galactic scale ones, let alone planets. And what's more, because of how black holes evaporate, they don't shrink out in energy. They expand and, and blow up. So there's no slow fire dwindling off you know it's still not death by ice it's death by fire instead it gets brighter and brighter and brighter and explodes and Jeez. so i think you have a lot of those civilizations they just say well wait you are your wealthiest your most energy right before the end and then as the ends there's a big party that last day and you're gone after having millions of years of ramp up where things just keep getting better and better in terms of energy production and you know is that the future we'll have no but it's it's something that science tells us is at least physically possible and that could be how things are going. So just to make sure I've understood right, you can th- throw matter into a black hole and that gives you back energy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, lots. Uh, it depends on the angle you throw it in at. And it's not the matter that actually gets in the black hole. It's as it's just about getting down there. It forms an accretion disk around it. And that is just full of things hitting each other at near light speed. There's so much radiation being given out by those that done right, and this isn't sophisticated, it's just an angle you toss it in at, you get about 20% of that matter turned into energy that comes out. It's in gamma rays, so you don't really want to set up a planet next to it, like in a certain film I won't mention, but uh, you could convert that into energy easy enough. We already do. That's how suns get powered anyway. And uh, Now, what follows in that black hole, you have to wait until it evaporates to get back, but the stuff that's right near the edge, that you get right away, and you know it's 20% efficiency versus um, 1% or less that you get from stars. Wow. Um, generally, most of the bigger ones run at like 0.1% or 1% of 1%. So it's very efficient. And it's really simple. You think of a black hole 
parallel reactor sounds like something really advanced from, from Star Trek you'd never have happening. The you know, kind of things that even the really advanced civilizations can't do, but it's actually really easy. It's just not mm. being killed in the process of doing it, but that's mostly actually not as hard as people tend to think. You know, it's really hard to fall into black holes. The, the original Disney movie really messed that up. You are much safer near a black hole than you are near a star. Right. What Disney movie? Oh, uh, The Black Hole. Oh, from the 1970s. I, never, I never even heard of it. <laughs> it's actually yeah, where the name came from. We used to call them Black Stars or Dark Stars before that, and they, they called it The Black Hole, and it stuck. Well, I think Archibald Wheelord, John Archibald Wheelord kind of called it that, too. Once you're in their sort of orbit, though, that's it, isn't it? You're screwed. No, if you're in orbit, it, like anything else, if you're in orbit around it, if you have enough velocity, you can leave. And if you're in orbit around something, that means your velocity is stable. You'd slowly decay with time if you didn't do anything. But to to actually fall into a black hole, you almost have to run right into it because otherwise you will go into a stable orbit around it, uh, even a very elliptical one. The accretion disk is that area close enough to it that there's a collection of matter dense enough for things to run into and slow down. As they start slowing down, they're air breaking just like you do in an atmosphere. That's when they crash into it. But you know, to do that, like our sun, if it turns into a black hole, would have an event horizon about three kilometers wide. And we ourselves wouldn't want to be within maybe a thousand kilometers of it, maybe a little bit further because the gravity is kind of heavy on us there. But you can't be within a million kilometers of the sun without dying instantly. So you would be yeah. safer near our sun if it turned into a black hole <laughs> than, than wow. you would be near that black hole. Yeah, it's weird. That's fascinating. What, what about beyond black holes? Because we're talking about a trillion years time. Presumably someone might have come up with some sort of other energy source beyond nature. I hope so. My, my usual thought is if you're in a black hole civilization, the assumption is that you've already been researching stuff for billions of years, and we've only been researching things for a few centuries, and there's just a few you know, million of us to actually work on that, whereas these galactic empires which really have trillions upon trillions of scientists working for billions of years. So if there's a way to get around entropy. They figured it out already by the that point. And there are, you know, there are a lot of options. You, know, you, you may not be able to get energy violation in our own universe, but um, dark energy, for instance, violates energy conservation. Uh, the expansion of the universe violates energy conservation. And we knew about that back, I mean, before most people knew there was energy conservation, we already knew that it was violated in a few cases. That's the core of general relativity from Einstein, is, is energy is only conserved in certain contexts. And so if it isn't necessarily stuck, and again, the universe came from someplace in the first place, the Big Bang violates entropy and, and conservation, probably. Um, since we don't know what came before, we don't really know that to be true. But maybe you can set off local ones, uh, maybe, which might not be a horrible idea. Maybe you can open up a wormhole to another universe and suck energy out of it. Maybe you can open up a wormhole to a younger universe and move there. But if they, but that's a Fermi paradox example, because if I could open up a gateway to a new universe, uh, then why didn't whoever made our universe in the same way do that originally and colonize the whole thing before we ever came into existence? And uh, there was one option we looked at in the episode, uh, it is in Civilization at the time, the Big Rip, that actually looks at the idea of the universe being torn apart by effectively a vast number of, of these and how you might actually hide inside a black hole to survive that. And you'd be <laughs> appearing in an inflationary epoch of a new Big Bang, so you actually couldn't colonize your whole universe. And most of the space around you would be faster than your ships could ever get to, they'd be going away. So you could have a huge galactic empire in this new universe, but most of the new universe would be well outside your reach and have to evolve normally. So there are all sorts of strange options that are available uh, if, if science goes certain ways on predictions, but 
we don't know enough yet for so many of those. They're very theoretical and iffy. You know, like string theory gives okay. us lots of options for surviving these things too, as well as whole new ways to destroy universes. <laughs> okay, so we can get past the black hole. So we can live trillions of years. Now we've got to live just ourselves. Um, the one I've, I've interviewed a few people who are sort of biohacking or into sort of biology in terms of making us live forever. Then a lot of people tend to be quite pessimistic about that actually happening in our lifetimes, or some people say it could. But then someone came up or said, that, you know, I'm sure you've heard this before, but that an, a good idea would be to get us into some sort of virtual reality where we can slow down our sense of time to such an extent that it feels like you're living forever. Is that possible? Uh, we, um, I, I borrowed the term frame jacking from a friend of mine, Dancy Taylor, who writes the uh, Barbivore series, where the guy involved is actually an uploaded human consciousness. And that's where you speed up your, your subjective awareness of time either moves very fast or very slow, depending on which you before, which is great for space travel because you can then slow it down during the boring bits and speed it up when you want to dodge bullets as a war. Um, <laughs> and that's definitely, I'd say, we call that speed superintelligence. It's one of the three categorized types of superintelligence that we get from Nick Bostrom very big futurist uh, philosopher. The other two types are network intelligence, which is like a hive mind, although that's not the only example of it, and quality superintelligence, which is always hard to explain or understand. We use the example that 10 monkeys is not smarter than one human, and that's an example of quality superintelligence, even though they have more brains than we do. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the uh, the idea they are being people ask me, Isaac, you're a futurist. What, what technology would you most like to see discovered in, in your own lifetime? And I always tell them life extension technology because I'd like to see yeah. more things down the road. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's the option for freezing people and bringing them back potentially too. And these are all things that could happen in our lifetimes very easily, but also could not. It's, it's so hard to guess how technology progresses. I think there are people who are born alive nowadays. They might be one year old or they might be hopefully older than me who will <laughs> live to see a day when people do not die of aging normally. Um, we call it the takeoff speed is when you start extending people's lives faster than, than they age. And Aubrey Gray, uh, who most people know uh, from the SENS Research Institute for Aging, uh, oh, well, actually most people know him as the guy with a really big beard, but uh, the other player was ZZ Top. <laughs> Um, but uh, he said to me one time when we were talking was um, all medicine is life extension technology. All medicine yeah. is. And I could make the argument that pretty much all technology to some degree is. Um, we have made so many little progresses on that. And we say, well, we haven't figured out how to reverse aging. It's like, well, no, what we mostly figured out is that aging is kind of this blanket term that we made up. Um, there was like seven or eight different ways we know of that we slowly age by that are completely unrelated or partially related to each other you know, from whether or how your body gets worse to get you out of garbage to telomere issues. And any of those things can kill you with time. And one of them will usually get you. There might be other things that would get us like three or 400 years that just we don't even see yet because they're not, nobody lives that long. But as we get better at fixing all these things, whether it's through cybernetics or genetics or freezing people or bloating them, lifespans are going to get longer. And, uh, you know, this is actually the first, the last few years has been the first time in decades that's actually gone down. It was only a little bit, like a few months as an average life expectancy. And I can't what the official main reason was. I think it might have been depression and suicide cases. COVID was hard on people. You know, we're only starting yeah. to realize how hard. But uh, it will go back up again, and uh, it will start rising again. And it's been rising by about one year for every six. If that trend continues, and that, that was most of the last century, if that trend continues, then in 60 years, everyone's going to live 10 years longer than the average right now is. When I was a kid... Uh, very few people lived to be 90. 
is twice mm. as many people live to be 90 now than was when I was a kid. And we expect that to grow to be 10% by the year 2050 without any technological advances. I think I've, I've heard though. I've heard that, that those stats are often misleading because what it really means is we're curing illnesses that might kill uh, toddlers and babies and, and you know, uh, fetuses. In some cases, like yeah. Mm. When you look at the ones yeah. who like comparing lifespans of people who lived three centuries ago, absolutely. Yeah, like, yes, the fact that most of us live to be adults is not really proof now that we age slower. But other parts are not. Like a lot of it is we, we are we're covering down on all the little ailments that get people so that now cancer is what gets most people well well yeah. great cancer got most people in the past it couldn't because they died for something else but again there is nothing here seems to say the maximum age you could live to is 120. that was one of those things just all getting said one day uh kind of like uh, the idea you only use 15 percent of your brain there's no known maximum age it's just no one's lived past that you know mm. all these little things that slowly kill us we get better at fixing them here and there, and it raises the average lifespan. And I don't care why it's going up. It's just that it's going up. Now, that might mean that everybody lives to the age of 110 and nobody makes it past 120. I don't think that's exactly how that will work out. But if that's the case, think about if everyone's living in pretty good health into their, into their first century. So you got people who are you know brilliant biologists and medical doctors who have an 80-year-long career of research. I feel like they could probably help with that, you know, to further advance that. And that's we talking that kind of snowball effect. Same yeah. for a lot of the sciences. But these two come with problems. We have to look at that in other episodes. Like, what do you do in a civilization where everybody lives to be 500? And people who say things like, well, we think it might be time to promote you. You've been working good for us for a century. <laughs> so you're, you're no longer the entry yeah. clock. Now you're the novice assistant sub clock. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another 200 years, well, you'll be running this department of 10 people. <laughs> I, suppose, I suppose the other side to that as well is that uh so, there's some suggestion it's you need to sort of it's good that certain generations die because they get stuck on their in their ideas and things you know you look at musicians and things they have their best work often in their 20s and 30s when they're younger they a lot of um, that's because their liver or kidneys have gone out on them by the time they're 40 <laughs> <laughs> that's true as well hey, i, I want to well <laughs> We're out of time, but I, I haven't asked Ray J's question, so I need a yes or a no. If life-extending tech was invented, do you think it would be available to everyone or reserved for the elitists? Absolutely. We have an episode explaining why that should probably be the case as opposed to why it would actually be beneficial to keep it to themselves. <laughs> okay, well then Ray J can check that out. Everyone can check that out. Where can they find your channel, Isaac? It's on YouTube at just Isaac Arthur, uh, Science and Future with Isaac Arthur. But if you search for either, you'll come right to it. And uh, we have about 400 some episodes. We're also available audio only on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and a bunch of the other ones. You can also, if you're not a YouTuber, find us on Rumble as well. So. <laughs> Fantastic. Everyone go check that out. Support our guests. Isaac, thank you so, so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. I've learned more than I've probably learned ever in about an hour. So it's been brilliant. Thank, thank you. you so much for having me on.